Well, Christ the Lord is risen. You know where I come from. We say he is risen indeed. Let's try that again. Christ the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. I want to welcome you to Onalaska Church of Christ and happy Resurrection Sunday. You know, the Easter message um, is a message of hope. Amen. It's a message of hope. Today, uh, we not only gather with other believers in this room and uh, online during second service, we join hundreds of thousands of other Christians all over the world as we celebrate and worship our risen Savior. This is always one of my favorite weekends of the year, from our Good Friday service to our Easter egg hunt uh, to Resurrection Sunday service. And uh, since our wedding day on September 13th, 2008, so this year will be 15 years that Faith and I have been married, and uh, she'll be here second service. So my row is kind of empty, you know, this morning. But uh, I, I, I got ready, and I think I said, hey, I'll see you at the 10 o'clock service. And she was, you know, face down in the pillow. All right, you know, maybe drooling a little bit, but... <laughs> <laughs> the side of her that only I get to see. So some of our best memories, though, uh, have come from our time here. You know, since we've been married and, and uh, since 2008, we've made it a priority to attend a Good Friday service together, uh, my wife and I and our kids, and, um, and then we love to gather with our church family on, on Easter Sunday. But some of our best memories have come from our time here. This, this church loves to gather. We love to come together, spurring one another on toward love and good deeds and encouraging one another in our faith, as Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25 says. You know, God's word reminds us that um, it's good for us to gather each week. It's good for us to do that. It's a privilege this morning to have the opportunity to worship and celebrate with you. Well, over the past three weeks, uh, we've been in a message series called More Than Enough. More Than Enough. The focus of this series has been uh, to remind all of us about how Jesus is more than enough for every single aspect of our lives. I'm also highlighting important themes that show up in the Easter story and how these themes are seen throughout God's Word, ultimately reminding us about how all of Scripture tells one consistent story that points us back to Jesus. The Old Testament and the New is about Jesus. Amen? Well, today we're going to continue our series, and we're going to do so by talking about another important Easter theme, and that is the theme of fear and faith. Fear and faith. Now, before we look at today's passage, I want to spend a few moments defining these words. What does the Bible have to say about fear And what does the Bible say about faith? Well, friends, it says a lot. Let's start with the greater of the two. Let's start with faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. This verse really is uh, the the biblical definition for what faith is. Uh, Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. In other words, faith is more than just believing. It's trusting our very lives to what we say we believe. A lot of people say they believe specific things, but do they give their lives to what they say they believe? For example, have you ever seen the videos of the the men and the women who are able to balance themselves while they walk over a deep canyon or a gorge? They do this on extremely thin uh, tight ropes. Have you seen videos like that on YouTube or, you know, America's Funniest Home Videos, maybe when they fail. (laughs) Well, you watch these people do these incredible things. And while you're watching, you really don't bat an eyelash that they're going to make it across. You you don't second guess it because you know they've done their homework. They've practiced enough to make it across. And nine times out of ten, they do. And when they don't, it makes it on YouTube and it's, you know, it's a fail. But 
But the question is, are, would, would you be willing to trust one of these acrobats to walk across a tightrope with you on their back? That's a different story, right? We're fine sitting in the comfort of our own home, watching these things unfold before us, but would you get on someone's back as they went across this? I would have to say the answer is no. But faith would say yes. Faith would say yes. Now, don't misunderstand me. I would not encourage you to put your faith in something or someone like this. But faith says yes. Faith in God says that we are willing to trust him with our lives. Faith is being willing to follow God's design for living as it's outlined in his word because we know that his ways are the best ways. That's what faith is. It's being willing to endure ridicule and even persecution for our faith because we're so sure that what the Bible says is true and that the Christian life is what's best for us, not only in this life, but for all of eternity. Now, the problem is that, and there's a big problem, your pastor included, we're, we're all humans. We sin. We, we fall short of God's standard. We, we are prone to wander in our faith. We're prone to worry and fear instead of trusting God in faith. This is what comes naturally to every single one of us. Let's talk about the other word for a moment. What exactly is fear? Well, let me start by saying that some fears are good. Some fears are good. It's good to have a healthy fear of the Lord, as the Proverbs in the Psalms say. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom, or the beginning of wisdom. How do we have God's wisdom in our lives? Well, it starts with having a fear of the Lord. Psalm 2, verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. So because God is so great, because he is so mighty, and because he holds the power of life and death in his hands, we need to have a healthy fear of him, a reverent fear. Now, fearing God is not the same as being afraid of God. Don't misunderstand the two. Don't confuse the two. Fearing God is not the same as being afraid of God. Being afraid of someone, what does that do? It drives you away from that person, does it not? So that's not the kind of fear that, that, that the, the, the writer of the Psalms and the Proverbs were talking about. Being afraid of someone drives you away from that person. Fearing God means living in awe of his power, in awe of his love, his goodness, and his grace. It's actually the kind of fear that draws us closer to him, not further away. The kind of fear that we're going to talk about today, though, is the negative kind of fear. It's really the kind of fear that keeps us from doing the things that we know we ought to do or the things that God has specifically called us to do in his word. Out of fear. If you go back to the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 13, 12 spies were sent out by Moses to scout the land of Canaan and they were told to do this as a future home for God's people. And after exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned they reported that the land was in fact just as God said it was. It was beautiful. It was everything you could ever want or dream of in a home. Everything you would ever need. But instead of trusting God's plan by faith, 10 out of the 12 men decided to respond in fear. Coming up with excuse after excuse as to why it was just too dangerous for them to take that step of faith. Too dangerous for them to do the thing that God had told them to do. They, they said, the people living here are just too big. The people living here are too powerful. 
The towns are large and they're fortified. Now, if you go back and actually read this story, you learn that they're not saying that every person there was, was too big, that every person there was too powerful, that every town was too large and too fortified. They're really just talking about a few. They allowed a few to dictate fear instead of faith. Fear led these men to develop a distorted, a distorted view of God in the process, who is greater than any problem they would, have, they would have faced. Fear kept them from doing the things that God called them to do. And fear, friends, in this way is not a good thing. This is the kind of fear that has a tendency to take root in every single one of our lives at different times and in different seasons. Well, today's passage, I think, is a great reminder a great reminder about how God wants to replace this kind of fear in your life with faith. Would you like for God to replace the fear in your life with faith? If you would, say amen. amen. I would agree. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 is going to be our passage this morning. This is Mark's gospel account of the resurrection. It's beautiful. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and the women were shocked, but the angels said, don't be alarmed, don't, don't be afraid. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. And the women fled the tomb, trembling and bewildered. They said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. A little bit of context for what we just read. According to Old Testament law, the body of an executed criminal must be buried the same day. We know that Jesus was executed as a criminal even though he wasn't one. Mark's gospel teaches us that Jesus breathed his last breath at 3 p.m., now, sundown on the Jewish clock, 6 p.m., was the beginning of the next day. Right? For, for Jews in the first century, their days are a little different than ours. This meant that there wasn't much time to take care of Jesus' body if they were going to follow the law. Now, you go back to Mark 15, Mark 14, we see some other names who are very integral to, to this historical account. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin council. He courageously went to Pilate and he asked if he could take Jesus' body so that it could be buried at the right time in the proper way. Mark 15 verse 43 tells us that Joseph was actually waiting for the kingdom of God to come. If we connect the dots, if we connect Mark's account to the other gospel accounts, we learn that Joseph was actually a disciple of Jesus. And as a disciple, he wanted Jesus' body to be taken care of and to be prepared in the right way. When Joseph went to Pilate, he told, uh, we're told that Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead because crucified victims 
usually lasted a few days on the cross, not hours. You have to wonder, why was that? And Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. He died at 3 p.m. He only lived for about six hours on the cross. This was likely due to the severity of his flogging and to the extreme loss of blood that he experienced leading up to the crucifixion. Jesus wasn't trying to stay alive on the cross as long as possible like other crucified victims were. The Bible tells us that at just the right time, Jesus declared that his work was finished and he freely gave up his life. If you read the gospel accounts, you learn that nobody was going to take Jesus' life from him. He was going to offer it up freely. He was going to give it freely for you and for me. After confirming that he was in fact dead, Pilate ordered that Jesus' body be given to Joseph so that he could be buried. Mark 15 verses 46 through 47 says that Joseph bought a long sheet of linen cloth. And then he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. So once the Sabbath was complete at 6 p.m., the women were able to go to the marketplace and purchase different spices to anoint the body of Jesus in the tomb. Now, the purpose of these spices, I I think it's pretty clear, it was to help cover up the stench that would come from a decaying body over time. So in the first century, a body was typically allowed to decay in a tomb for one year. Can everyone say gross? It's pretty gross. (laughs) After one year, the family was invited back. They would return to the tomb. They would remove the bones, and they would place them in an ossuary. It's a fancy word for a bone box. That's what they would do with the remains. It was late on Saturday evening when the women purchased the spices, but it was too dark for them to take them to the tomb. According to Mark chapter 16, verse 2, early the following morning, Sunday, the first day of the week, they went to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. Now, they, they had no expectation, please understand this, no expectation of finding anything except the body of Jesus lying in the tomb. The thought never crossed their mind that the body might not be there. And while they were walking to the tomb, we we know this because an important question was raised. Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Who's going to do this for us? According to archaeological evidence that we have, the average first century tombstone weighed between one and two tons. That's between 2,000 and 4,000 pounds. It's a good question they brought up, isn't it? Who's going to move this thing for us? I think a few strong men could roll the stone in front of the tomb's interest because of its circular shape, but removing the stone would have been much more difficult. They were asking an important question. When they arrived at the tomb, to their surprise, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away. Someone had already done it. And not only had the stone been rolled away, but the body of Jesus was no longer there. Rather than seeing a body... The Bible tells us they saw a young man sitting on the right side of the tomb, dressed in a white robe. The other gospel accounts reveal that there were actually two men in the tomb. These were angels. But Mark chose to only focus on one of them, the one that that spoke. Of course, seeing this caused the women to be shocked and alarmed. I mean, how many passages have we seen this year where people encounter an angel and their first response is to be afraid? Angels are kind of scary looking, especially the way the Bible describes them. This would have been frightening. But one of the angels said something very important in verses 6 and 7. He said, don't be alarmed. 
Don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. So the women, they were in the right place. But the body wasn't there. Jesus had been raised from the dead. He had done what he told his disciples he would do. Back in Mark 14, verse 28, Jesus said, After I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. It still didn't click for the disciples. Still didn't get it. After Jesus said these words, if you read this passage in, in its entirety, we see that Peter started arguing with Jesus kind of back and forth. He argued about how even if everyone else deserted him, he never would. He would stick by Jesus' side no matter what. We're going to talk about this more in a moment. When the women went to the tomb, they were told by the angel that Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. He was raised from the dead, and then he went to Galilee where he planned to meet up with the disciples. Hearing this, we read that the women ran away from the tomb, trembling and confused, as any one of us would. Initially, they they didn't say anything to anyone about what they had seen. So now that we have a little bit of context for this passage, let's talk about the hope that it gives us. Because remember, friends, Easter is a message of hope. All of God's word is a message of hope for those who are in Christ, amen? Amen. Jesus' resurrection reveals to us the true way to life. Those who think that life comes from avoiding suffering, avoiding hardship, they're shown to be wrong because of the crucifixion and ultimately the resurrection. Jesus' life teaches us that the way to a full life is through service, hardship, pain, and even suffering at times. The resurrection also shows us that a friend's physical death is not the end. Well, let me say that again. Physical death is not the end. Jesus was not left in the grave. The Bible tells us that believers won't be either. As Church of Christ pastor Brent Kirchville once wrote, by submitting to death, Jesus found life. And by surrendering our lives to Jesus, we find life. This is the hope that's found in the resurrection. Death no longer gets the final say. But there's even more hope that we have because of the resurrection. And this has more to do with this theme of fear and faith. The message that the angel gave to the women was not only to go and tell the disciples that Jesus had been raised from the dead, that he would meet them in Galilee, but to also share this with Peter as well. And verse 7 reveals an important detail in Mark's resurrection account. Mark 16, verse 7 Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you're going to see him there, just as he told you before he died. I had never caught this detail before uh, before these past couple of weeks, but I decided to underline the words, including Peter. I would encourage you to do the same. I decided to look into why the gospel writer chose to single Peter out. Why was this? It turns out that these words are very important. You see, the life of Peter is a hopeful story of how God can use people in spite of their failures. Of how God can get a hold of someone's life 
and multiply anything that they think they can do for, for the kingdom, for God's glory. Peter messed up a lot, but God was still able to use him. Peter sinned. He fell short. We, we like to lift Peter up on a pedestal, but he's a pretty messed up guy. I think about his life just in a, in a frame, if you would. You know, Peter was skeptical about Jesus when he first met him. He was fearful about many of the things that Jesus called him to do. His very last act before Jesus was crucified was to publicly deny Jesus three times. Think about all the years that heard that. And then leading up to the resurrection, you could argue that he completely misunderstood Jesus' mission and his ministry. Peter used to go by the name Simon. That is until Jesus changed his name. The name that Jesus gave him, Peter, it means the rock. Peter wasn't very solid in his faith for the first three years of following Jesus. But that was his name, the rock. I mean, sure, he had some wins. He had some high points. But most of his life during this time could be characterized by fear instead of faith. But in spite of his failures... And this just blows my mind. In spite of his failures, the angel's words to the women at the empty tomb were so clear that day. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. Even though his final act before the crucifixion was to completely deny Jesus, God chose to not exclude Peter from his kingdom. Peter must have felt horrible. Horrible during these these three days. I think if we're honest, we all understand the feeling of, of, of sin, what it does to you. Sin alienates us from God. I'll just be honest with you. There, there have been times in my life when I've sinned, and, and instead of me feeling like, oh, I just want to run to Jesus, it makes me want to hide. It makes me feel, feel ashamed. You can feel it in the pit of your stomach. Can you imagine denying Jesus in this way? The heartache, the shame, the regret, it was real. And what a surprise it must have been that the first time he heard about how Jesus was raised from the dead, this news, this good news, also came with a personal invitation for him. Jesus gave Peter an invitation to return. Instead of his last act being a step of fear, God invited him, friends, to take a step of faith. God wants to give you that same opportunity today where the natural response for all of us is typically fear, especially when it comes to being bold for God, doing the things that that God has called us to do. God invites us to take a step of faith to trust him. You know, your last act before coming to church this morning may have been yelling at your kids. It may have been fighting with your spouse. There, there may be a relationship in your life that is strained and, and it needs some reconciliation. It needs some healing. Your, your last act this week may have been gossiping about a coworker. It may have been cheating on your taxes. Or flat out denying Jesus in the way that you've been living your life this season. I mean, the truth is, we all deny Jesus, and we do this often in one form or another. This is called sin. When we sin, that's denying Jesus. The resurrection gives us hope. It gives us hope because it includes a personal invitation for every single person. 
It's an invitation to return home. An invitation to put our faith in a faithful God. An invitation to be forgiven and freed from the chains and the bondage of sin. An invitation to be adopted into God's family. The natural response for all of us is to go through life afraid, fearful, trying to make it on our own steam, not relying on God's leading in our lives. I would say that fear, fear can be a great challenge to faith. But what if God can do in your life what he's done for hundreds of men and women throughout history? What if, what if God could use your fear to lead you to a greater faith in him? Whatever that fear looks like for you today, maybe God's calling you to take a step of faith and to go on a mission trip or to start serving in some way or to talk to a coworker about Jesus or to start leading your family within your home, opening up the word of God and making Jesus the priority. Maybe it's leading men, it's, it's leading your spouse, praying with your spouse, being the man that you know that God has called you to be. What, we all have fear in our lives when it comes to to this Christian walk, whatever that fear looks like for you, remember that nothing is impossible with God. Fear is a major theme throughout the Gospels. Peter was fearful. The disciples were fearful. Many of the people Jesus encountered were fearful. So to me, it's encouraging to see how God can use those who are fearful by turning their fear into faith. The next time that we see Peter's name mentioned in God's word is in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. Jesus had ascended into heaven at this point. The disciples gathered together in Jerusalem in the upstairs room of a house they were staying at. A man by the name of Matthias was chosen to replace Judas as an apostle. And then you get to Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, and just as Jesus had promised, all the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. And filled with the the Holy Spirit, Peter boldly stepped forward. Look at this scene, and it's kind of like a lone ranger. He wasn't alone because God was living in him. But Peter boldly stepped forward, and he preached the very first sermon on the life, the ministry the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and he did this to a crowd of thousands. Peter went from denying Jesus three times to boldly proclaiming Jesus to the masses. Something changed. He went from responding in fear to responding in faith. And the Bible tells us that about 3,000 people believed his message and were baptized into Christ that day, marking the beginning of the church. Can God's people say amen? From that moment on, even though it wasn't easy, even though it required a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice, oftentimes even their own lives, God used his people to advance the gospel to every corner of the earth, to make disciples of all nations. Mark's gospel ends with a challenge to every reader. And the challenge is this. What will you do with the resurrection? What will you do with the resurrection? The the point of the resurrection is not to just feel good one Sunday a year to get dressed up in your brightest clothes, to look your Sunday best, to go eat a great meal and just, you know, feel good about the day. That's not the point of the resurrection. 
The point of the resurrection is, is to not return to our lives the way that we've always lived them. The resurrection is supposed to be life-changing. When I first read about the angel's instruction to the women at the tomb, when he said, now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, I thought to myself, Peter represents all of us. Peter represents all of us. And even though I sin and fall short all the time, God's invitation is still for me. And friends, his invitation is for you as well. So the question becomes, what will you do with the resurrection? I believe the resurrection is that stake in the road. It's that turning point when you believe that what Jesus said happened, truly happened. When you believe the eyewitness accounts, when you believe the word of God, you believe that Jesus today sits at the right hand of the Father interceding on behalf of every single believer. That's life-changing. What will you do with the resurrection? Will you continue to live in fear? Or will you allow God to get a hold of your life and to change your fear into faith?